Welcome everyone to the team. We're back. We're back. Welcome to the Educators Lounge. Uh, you might have thought that it's been a while, Tom. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. We took a little hiatus. We did. We needed to finish off 2020 and just, you know, passed. And then we welcomed 2021 with gusto. Didn't you? We did. Yeah. In my family. I think so. I mean, in my family, we had quite the party. Just the five of us. A lot of confetti. Yeah. Really? Confetti. Yeah. And now, yeah, lots of it. I felt like I usually don't have confetti in my house, but I felt like the kids have suffered enough. So we'll give them some confetti for New Year's Eve. And we did. And it was fun. And they loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, I mean, our, our kids were really excited. Although I think there was a bit of a letdown, you know, because for young kids, uh, the, the concept of New Year's is very different than like the concept of like, I don't know, Christmas or a birthday or like, so there was like all this buildup and then they go to bed at eight o'clock and then the next day is the same as the, like, there's just, you know, and, and that was our fault probably because we didn't do enough the next day, but you know, um, yeah, it's, it feels oh, good. Oh, you didn't have years. confetti. We didn't have, well, it's a choking hazard, you know, I have a, an 11 month old. I mean, sometimes you just have to, sometimes you just have to days. take the risk. <gasps> Congratulations. Happy birthday, Violet. Happy birthday. Yeah. Um, I, I know that a lot of people are saying, you know, thank goodness 2020 is gone. And there's part of me that feels that way, but you know, I don't like to wish away time or forget um, all the good things that happened in a year, especially this podcast, because I'm sure our listeners are thinking that the podcast was the best thing that happened to them in 2020. That and the birth of my daughter was for me. Yeah. For you, but for the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. True. They probably wouldn't have celebrated the birth of Violet as much as I did. Yeah, they could have, point. they could have, but Maybe. no, we're, we're so happy to be back and we have some amazing guests today. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Uh, we sit down today with Dr. Pamela Ross McLean and Dr. Nate McLean uh, from the University of Michigan Flint's education leadership and education doctorate programs. Um, pretty exciting to talk with that dynamic duo. Yes, for sure. And I know they're going to, they're going to, going to teach us so much. And um, so I'm excited to hear what, what they're going to share with us. Okay. So I have one question for you. And I, and I, I really want to know this in truthfulness, since we're talking about the end of 2020 and the, the dawning of a, well, we're now into February, but um, yeah, there's a lot to celebrate about the last year that we had, right? Like, and, and I think if you were to think about it, um, what's the one positive thing you're going to take away from 2020 and, and how it sh- has shaped or changed you moving forward in a positive way? Honestly, there, 2020 was a difficult year and I don't want to minimize that at all because there has been so much loss. But I was speaking with my amazing husband just the other day about the amount of time we have had spend to spend with our children and to get to see them and be with them and support them through the pandemic, but also to witness how strong they have been through all of the changes has been such a blessing. We have so much fun as a family and we had fun as a family before the pandemic but I felt like we were always rushing, rushing, rushing. And March, we kind of put a pause on it. And we have so many new traditions and and new um, appreciations for one another that we never had before. And I could never, I, I said to my husband, we will look back on this time in 20 years. And I'm not sure that we'll think about how bad it was. We'll be so thankful for the amount of time we spent together. And I'm not just talking about my children. I am talking about my husband as well. Um, you know, I know I make fun of him a lot, but he is an amazing father and an amazing husband. And to be able to go through this with him and support each other has been such a blessing. I completely agree. You know, and that's, I, for me, that's the same thing. My time with your husband has been amazing and I've grown. I'm really sure it has. Yeah. Well, he's I, supported actually, you yes, a lot. I've, <laughs> I've got to know him in our meetings that we have. He always generally sits behind you, but, but no, in all seriousness, like 
I was just saying this to Scarlett yesterday, our, our eldest daughter. I was like, you know, when I was a kid, I never had this much time. I mean, I grew up in a divorced household too. Like my parents were separated and divorced. And so like even the concept of, you know, seeing my dad, for example, every day was not something I got to do, let alone spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with him. Right. And I do think we will look back and be like, wow, this, this was a great time. And I, and I, you know, uh, to get to know each other, to develop new traditions and, and, um, and, and for my relationship with Christina, like, um, it really has flourished in some capacities that probably wouldn't have been possible. Um, you know, it, literally the, the element in the, the framing of this as a partnership is, is couldn't be any more of an accurate statement because I, I can't really understand and sur surviving and thriving through this situation without having that dynamic be um, there. So I, I completely agree uh, with that. I have one other one. If I can just take one more minute. Um, yeah. My children. I mean, you are the executive producer. It's true. So we can, I can take as much time as I would like. Um, so my children, I have a f first grader and a third grader and they didn't start the year. They started the year remotely and then they went face to face in October and then they were taken back to remote mid November. And then, um, in the beginning of January, they went back to school and face-to-face. Uh, -face. And when I was dropping them off the first day back January 4th or 5th, um, when we were in the loop and I saw the children coming off the bus, I actually got a little teary-eyed because I realized that how happy I was that these children were going to be able to go back to school. Something that we always, I always took for granted the right to go to school and learn in a community and be taught by amazing teachers was so suddenly not a guarantee. And so to see all of these children, even though they were wearing masks, running into school and, in, and, and being and so happy to see each other really gave me a new appreciation for the education system, the right for education and Secondly, shout out to every teacher because they're amazing and skilled and patient and do it so much better than I do. And I'm so happy that my children are sitting in front and with their teachers right now. And so that's something else I'm thankful for. That's a great point. Well, without further ado, should we should we jump into the interview with... Uh... Nate and Pam? Yes, yes, let's do it. I know we're going to enjoy it a lot. All right. viewers can't see this but they're sharing a zoom screen because not only are they a dynamic duo at our department but they've but quarantined they for 14 days and they've been able to hang out together no they hang out together and now can oh. do this zoom session together on our podcast this week we have two of our faculty members in the education department at u of m flint dr pamela ross mclean and dr nate mclean who work in the education leadership program but they also have extensive extensive experience working as educational leaders in the field and so we're so excited to talk with them today so welcome thank, thank you. you appreciate you okay well, we're so glad and we know that you'll bring so much to um, our listeners. It's a vast listenership for the two of you. It's growing you, exponentially if, every week. Yeah. If you didn't know, um, there is, and to remind our listeners, there's a um, a challenge if we get to how many? A hundred listeners, Tom? I thought, I thought it was a thousand. Is that not? Mm, might I'd have be. to go back to know. episode one. That's a long time ago. If, if we get to a thousand leaders, our listeners, Tom is going to shave his beard. So, yeah. So it's up to you two to bring in the listeners. So here we go. Right. We, we are, no pressure. 
we're going to start with a very, very popular segment that we call five questions. This is a segment that um, Tom and I come up with questions and we will ask you these important on point questions for what's happening in society and what's happening in your life. And you have the opportunity to answer them. So are you ready for the five question segment? We are. Okay. Um, am I going first, Tom? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to start, I'm going to start with, uh, one that I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on. So either of you can answer first, you two get to decide. Um, what trait in others do you most associate with leadership? You go, you take that one. <laughs> Empathy. Empathy. Empathy, okay, I like that. Nate, what about you? Well, for me, it's organization, you know, organization. Yeah, nice. both very important topics or uh, characteristics for an individual who's a leader. If you could start over and choose a profession that's not education related, what would it be? I, go, ahead. go ahead. I'd be a stay-at-home mom. Mm, I think that's I'd a great be profession. A, I'd, I'd be a stay-at-home dad. Well, then I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom anymore. He's going to be here with me. Um, well, actually, I had aspirations of going into politics. Uh, even went to law school. That turned out to be a colossal fail failure on my end. Uh, but I, I can't imagine any other profession. So that's a difficult question for me. I, you know, uh, this is I'm in it for the long haul. You know, education is, you know, where um, where I find myself to be most productive um, and scholarship, I think is something that, you know, I'm developing more of an interest in. So it, it would be education for me and solely education. So I will say this very quickly. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, but I knew I needed a doctor to do it. And I prayed and I thought God said education. I'm still holding hope out for education, but I would like to do more with my Afro-American and African studies and I think that education makes room for all of that. So I would choose education again. That's, That's awesome. awesome. And I just wanted to say that I know you are a new new parents to a puppy, Doc. And so there's not it's never too late for either one of you to be stay-at-home parents to Doc if you <laughs> if education doesn't yeah, you, work out. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's an education within itself, just trying to figure out, you know, his idiosyncrasies along the way. But, you know, he's learning us and we're learning him. So, as a matter of fact, I'm getting ready to, getting ready go. to go learn him some more. I'll be right. If our, if our listeners could see the facial expressions on Pam and Nate as the dog is barking, I wish we were, we could show it to you because it's amazing. It's amazing. It's probably similar to the expressions I make when my kids are doing something of sorts or yeah, all sorts of fun stuff. I agree. I agree. Okay. So I'm going to go on and um, I know Nate went to go see Doc, the dog, but Pam, you can answer this one. And then if Nate gets back in time, he can answer it as well. Who was your favorite teacher and why? Favorite teacher. Uh, I have a, a, a couple that I have to give shout out to. I had um, Willie Allen, my English teacher, and um, he was the only African-American male teacher I remember having in high school. And um, I did well in his class um, and seeing him as a role model, I didn't know what, I didn't even know in hindsight what that meant to me to have that relationship, but I have another teacher, Mrs. Brown from middle school, art teacher, and she gave up her lunch period and opened up her room for us to come into her room and work on projects. And that meant the world to me because she gave me a safe space to survive the awkwardness of middle school. So those are two teachers I would say were my favorite, favorite teacher. I have to go back to elementary school with um, Mrs. Dorsey, Edith Bailey, on Saginaw's North Side. Very instrumental in my development within literacy. 
uh, extremely important. Uh, I grew up in a um, project housing unit, actually, on Sacramento's north side. And right across the street from our apartment um, was Claytor Library. It was a part of the um, Saginaw uh, public library system. And uh, Mrs. Dorsey would issue these challenges for me in terms of reading, uh, not just different types of uh, genres of literature, but um, just volume reading, which actually taught me, uh, you know, how to appreciate different aspects of literacy. So I would have to say Mrs. Dorsey was extremely instrumental, sixth grade. You may well, both have emotional remembering these great educators because those are the people that we carry forward with us that we want to be for, you know, young people today. But it's just, I didn't know I would get teary-eyed thinking about the people who made that difference in my life. So thank you for asking. And it's really those positive experiences that, you know, actually led me to the field of education. You know, had I not had those opportunities to interact with uh, educators along the way, there's no way that I would have had the point of reference to develop an interest in becoming an educator. So I credit her with uh, a lot of the foundational um, skills that I've developed in literacy and my overall interest in the profession. Yeah, well, I appreciate both of you uh, showing a little bit of your, I don't say vulnerability, but emotional <laughs> being human. I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. And we were in a separate meeting yesterday. Both of you were involved and we were having this conversation too about um, how do we become more human? How do we see our joy and all of these things? And I think in the last nine or 10 months, it's been hard to have those connections in a virtual space. And part of the reason we see kids learn and grow is because they create emotional connections to the content, emotional connections to the people. And um, I think that's somehow we have to find ways to kindle that and, and, and make and, and foster that. So thank you for sharing. That was really great. Definitely. Um, kind of, similar in a question um what is if you were to define your essence of who you are as a human um what would that be i'll jump out there you know when when people ask you what's your leadership style i immediately revert back to distributive type of leadership right mm -hmm. but at my core when we talk about servant leadership uh, i think that's where um i've developed my capacity to lead and others have um, actually fueled that capacity uh, to learn more about leadership, but um, instilling those types of uh, values and others along the way that I've had an opportunity to collaborate with in education and just, you know, learn from, you know, and enjoy that type of learning dynamic that's occurring with uh, colleagues within the field of education. In my case, it would uh, naturally be a, a pre-K through 12 uh, system, but servant leadership is uh, at my core in terms of, um, you know, just how I function as a, as a leader within education. Thank you. So I would say my essence is one of being um, an empath. I, I, I absorb the feeling of the room, right? And in my essence, I am always we-centric and seldomly me-centric. And, and I'm troubled by that because this is a world that's very me-centric, even when it doesn't see itself in that way. And that's why I have to continue to ground myself in spirituality because I think that we are supposed to see the wholeness of the collective. And so I'm willing to take one for the team, which servant leaders also are willing to do that because you are serving those that you lead, not wanting them to serve you. And then when you have that spirit about you, the next thing you look up, people are showing up to give back to you what you have sown with no expectation of retribution into others. So in my essence, I think I am a naturally empathetic person. I, 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 I feel what other people are feeling and I care to do something about it if I can. 
That that does definitely sounds like you, Pam, knowing you and having worked with you. Um, but I would think it would be hard in the times that we're in right now to, you know, you said you like to read the room and have like a we versus me. And we don't have those personal connections because we can't sit in a room with each other right now. So I wonder if that's difficult for you to lead that way, knowing that you can't have like the personal connections that you would normally be able to have pre-COVID. Oh, I absolutely hate this Hollywood Squares existence. I, I just can't stand it. I don't know when to stop talking. I, I don't know what I've said afterwards. You know, it's just, it's just awful. And so I also try to send little messages to people sometimes, you know, in the chat. Although sometimes they won't let us have private chats in the little rooms. I don't know how they do that. But I, I, I want to connect with people. I, that's who I am. And so it has been really hard, but I'm thinking that it's helping me to get over myself because having to tape myself for students, that's like asking me to come to work in a bikini. I, I just hate it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm learning that you have to get over yourself and adapt to the time. So something good is going to come out of it, I'm hoping. My experience has been a lot different though, just being new to the University of Michigan Flint um, in this whole COVID culture and learning the personalities. I'm talking about adult, adult personalities, obviously faculty for the most part. Uh, and them sharing their vulnerabilities because that's what we're in right now. We're in a state of vulnerability caused by the pandemic and the working conditions that are an outgrowth of that. So just interfacing with people on that end, you get an opportunity to see them, their true essence. You asked about the essence of an individual. You get to see their vulnerabilities and it takes a lot for adults who are often, you know, a little bit more guarded than students, for example, in the K through 12 sector uh, to demonstrate those vulnerabilities. Uh, and I always tell people at, at this point, I think the best thing that we can do is just respect the fact that, you know, people are in that space and do everything that we can just to be professional, collaborative and supportive. So uh, my experience has been totally different. I've, I've gotten to know my colleagues better uh, because of this whole COVID climate. So. That's awesome. I'm happy that, that you've had that experience. All right, if one more question, because I feel that, yeah, I just, I'm really glad that you can take some positivity out of it. It's, it's, it's an admirable, it's an admirable trait. Um, all right, this is a final question. Um, it's the mo probably the most important one. If you could ask your pet, Doc, one question, what would it be? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna let you we got really deep and then Christine just like <laughs> took us right. <laughs> Don't you think you'd be happier neuter? <laughs> I would the male in the house has boycotted it and I think you need to go in that I would probably ask him how can we develop an anti-neutering campaign within the house? Oh. You know? oh that he wouldn't have to go through that ordeal. You know? <laughs> All right. All there right. we go. There we go. Well, thank you for participating in five questions. It's our way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more than if we were to just give you give them your bios, because I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have known anything about the diverse thoughts of the neutering, anti-neutering campaign in your house. <laughs> Had we just had we just at, told your bios. Yeah. So thank you so much for participating. This episode of the Educator Lounge podcast is brought to you by the University of Michigan Flint Masters in Arts and Certification Program, also known as the Secondary Mac Program. The Secondary Mac Program focuses on education where it's needed most with a real world focused and field based experience that allows working individuals career changers, post-baccalaureate, and folks interested in becoming teachers, an accelerated path to getting into the classroom and becoming teachers to shape the future. There are small cohorts and ends in certification in multiple areas. For more information, go to uofmflint.edu forward slash Mac. In addition, this episode of the Educator Lounge podcast is also sponsored by the event on University of Michigan Flint campus, the Flint, Michigan, and the fate of the American metropolis held this Thursday, February 11th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. 
This, pro uh, this discussion will feature Andrew Highsmith as he will discuss his 2015 book, Demolition Means Progress, in a discussion-based format. This discussion will be moderated by Flint faculty Dr. Daniel Burchock and Dr. Jacob Lederman. Um, there will be an opportunity for question and answer by audience. To register, you go to go.umflint.edu forward slash Highsmith. Sponsoring the event are the Urban Institute for Racial, Economic, and Environmental Justice, the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice, the Department of History, and the Department of Political Science at the University of Michigan Flint. Again, to register for this event, go to go.go.umflint.edu forward slash Highsmith. That's H-I-G-H-S-M-I-T-H. And now back to our show. Tom, you want to take it away? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I we're we're excited to have you on because you know we're we're really trying to find ways to connect with folks and and that's been some of the things that we talked about already and you already kind of talked a little bit about this, um, but share a little bit about your path to where you, how you got to where you are now. I mean, you both shared these really great touching stories about what led you into the profession of education, um, but is there anything else you want to expand on of, of how you ended up? where you are. I mean, you both have had very interesting careers getting to the point to where you're at now and have a lot of um, life left in both your scholarly pursuits and your teaching practice in your leadership at the university. So how'd you get here? You know, most of the work that I've done in K through 12 systems has been in the area of school reform. All right. So when I look at my walk um, through the district, that um, I was a K through 12 student within and how it prepared me to go on to the University of Michigan Ann Arbor, uh, which quite honestly, um, the system probably could have did a better job of uh, preparation. And some of the struggles that, you know, I endured on that campus, just getting the basics at the same time, having to keep pace with the regular curriculum, it was, it was difficult. I mean, there were nights where I was studying literally eight, nine hours a night. And I, I'm not kidding. Mm. It was just that intensive. You know, so my desire to go into education, to go back to the school that I graduated from, to teach English, ninth through 12th grade, to, you know, teach students the value of um, process writing, all types of argumentative writing, uh, positional writing, so that they would be in a, in a, in a better space to, to do well at universities that would challenge him like that. I mean, for me, that was personal. So starting off as a, as a classroom teacher in, in the ELA and making my way through the system, the same system that, you know, I came up through as a, as a, as a youth and, and all the way up to the superintendency. Uh, for me, that was, that was critical, but you know, had I not had those initial hardships in developing as a learner, I would not have had that motivation to, you know, go back and actually right some of the wrongs that were occurring within the system. To nobody's fault. I mean, I think the most of the educators that I encountered were doing the best that they could based on the resources that they had available hmm. and the practices that you know they were accustomed to using, but, you know, having gone to a university uh, like U of M in Ann Arbor and knowing, you know, how to go back and prepare students for that type of rigor, I think that's what motivated me to, to go into education. Well, I'll, I'll try to answer too and give you the short version because I'm still trying to figure out where I am now. I'm not even sure where I am professionally because I still haven't stepped into what I thought the professorate would be like. Um, I went to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, discovered uh, Afro-American and African studies, uh, decided that if I wanted to teach in higher ed, I was gonna need a thing called a PhD, which I didn't even know about them as an undergraduate. But I got to encounter my first African-American female professor and that's when I was like, I, I want to teach in higher ed. That's what I thought being a faculty was, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
I figured if I could do uh, good enough at U of M Ann Arbor, I would get scholarships to go other places because my parents definitely couldn't afford for me to continue on. And so I, I worked hard at that and got a master's so I could see if I had the chops for a doctorate, um, studied at Cornell's Africana Studies and Research Center, and then got accepted at Michigan State in a program that I had prayed for guidance on called teacher education. So um, I finished my coursework there and was like, how the world am I gonna be a teacher educator? And I've never seen children. I've never been in front of anyone, but I've gotten through all these doctoral classes without losing my mind. Um, and so I actually went home and slept in my parents' basement for a while and got the bright idea to actually go get a teaching certificate at Saginaw Valley State University, which is where I met my husband on detour from law school that didn't work out. <laughs> um, and we finished and the next thing was, you guys are gonna start working, right? right? So I'm an ABD, I start working in an urban middle school and I figure out that all that good stuff I learned at Michigan State was not enough for me to be prepared for the realities of what I met in a highly impoverished, largely African-American inner city school. And that's when I began to do the hard work of figuring out how to be responsive to the needs of those students. I also had a parallel existence where I started writing grants in the community. And I spent 10 years providing youth enrichment programs alongside being a teacher and then subsequently a faculty. Um, Finished my doctorate, earned tenure at Saginaw Valley for 10 years, left that because I was disenchanted by the university's ability to build inroads into urban schools in meaningful and strategic and committed and respectful ways. Spent three years in inner city central office, survived three years in <laughs> inner city central office administration. Um, only to find out that there are systemic problems everywhere you go and was fortunate to have an opportunity to come back to higher ed um, at the brand name of my undergraduate alma mater at the University of Michigan Flint. So I land here in ed leadership in an education department amongst amazing teacher educators, still trying to figure out where this here and now path is leading me but um, a lot of the ambitions that I had early on are still deeply seated in my mind of what I might be able to build um, in this place at this time as a faculty member, so. So, oh, go ahead, Nate, sorry. I had no interest in going into administration. I would have been satisfied, I think, staying in the classroom, I loved it. When I think about my work, uh, our journey through education. I think I was probably the most effective as a classroom teacher, which, which is why, you know, I'm really excited about this opportunity in higher education. But, you know, for me, as a classroom teacher, there were so many systems that needed to be reformed. You know, so many practices that were antiquated needed to be uh, better researched and updated. You know, some of them quite honestly, were just, you know, inefficient and, and caused inefficient systems. So I took that as a challenge. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to sit up and just complain about your conditions? Or do you want to go into administration and make some change for the students and for the colleagues within your building? And I took that as a challenge uh, for that building. And then I wanted to expand the scope of that district-wide. So I had no initial interest in going into administration. I thought they were just some puffed up bureaucrats who, you know, would shift on a dime. Um, but um, quickly found out that it's what you make it, you know, it's how you personalize it and how you treat your, 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 your professional colleagues and build relationship with them, so. What strikes me about what both of you are saying is this idea that you have this drive to give back and also be able to shape the systems that you're seeing at the same time that you're interacting with them. Um, you know, right? So you're seeing it happen and rather just live in the here and now, 
it appears to me and what I appreciate is that both of you said, I see it, but we can do better and I can be part of that change. And it seems like that's what both of you are after is um, this idea of we don't have to be stagnant, um, not placing blame anywhere, but saying, let's move forward and let me be part of the change that I'd like to see in these systems that are, are kind of directing our educational systems. So thank you for dedicating your lives that way, because we would certainly be missing out if we didn't have the two of you in educational leadership, even if that wasn't what you originally thought you were going to do. Yeah. So in, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, of ways to create better opportunities for learners, whether those at this point be, a, whether they're adult learners or in the K through 12 sector, you know, you know, children learners. So what can we do to advance their educational aspirations to give them a fighting chance of having a decent quality of life? You know, it's rough, rough out here. We all know that. So what can we do to set in motion circumstances that they can benefit from so that their quality of life supersedes that of maybe their parents? Um, that's what I was searching to do. I, I just want to say one thing uh, in response to what you said, Christine. There, there was a time when I was assigning blame, but I was blindly assigning blame to the white power structure, for lack of better words, right? And it took all these seats in, in places that I hadn't imagined to see that um, marginalization is maintained by a number of factors that are bigger than just um, the white power structure, if you will. And so I think that all of my experiences have helped me to be in a better position to be a change agent without, um, with, a, with a more holistic picture of where the problems uh, are embedded. And, and, and I couldn't see that before. And I hate that I'm a person who has to learn by experience. You know, you would like to just be someone who could read a good book and figure it out. But apparently sure, sure. all the things that I have experienced were in my mind preparing me for a higher uh, calling, um, a, a, a greater work that's going to take a lot of people with the same commitments, of a diverse group of people with the same commitments that can really um, impact systemic change in our, in, in our public schools. So I, I think I'm thankful for that now. Wasn't so thankful when I was having these hard lessons learned, but I am now. Well, along that same vein, in thinking of the terms of equity and justice, you both have really talked about that being a critical foundational element of both the framework in which you operate and the things that you work toward um, in your educational practice as an, as an educator, as a leader. So how do you see social justice and equity-oriented work um, as part of your your next step. So, you know, you're right, Pam, we can sit in, and I'm, I'm maybe mixing a little bit of what you said, we could admire the conundrum of white supremacy and white issue, whiteness in the, in the educational project. And, but also have to understand that there are other influences that go into causing challenges and creating barriers. Um, and some of that disentanglement is being able to see that. But the question I think often for leaders and educators alike is, now what? How do we start to disentangle that? What do we do? And as folks that are both in it and preparing future leaders in it, how do you, how do you prepare them for what they need to do to disentangle that? What's next for them? Sorry, that was a very awkward loaded question with lots of caveats, but you, you both have piqued my brain in various ways. You know, let me just start by saying, I think my realization is that, you know, there, there's always going to be some inequity, inadequacy of some kind. You know, I know the push to have uh, these districts right-sized, 
so that you know the organizational structures can be as efficient as possible to get students and families what they need to be able to build partnerships within the community so that you can leverage those external resources from you know outside agencies with your existing resources within K through 12 districts. I understand the complexities involved in all that. And I think I've been somewhat successful at, you know, bridging those services or leveraging those services with those agencies I, I just mentioned. Uh, but for me, it's, it's about, you know, making sure that you build opportunities for kids or students to get the services that they need. Um, based on you know your drive to develop those relationships with, within your your communal context um, as i indicated much of my work is in the area of school reform and i had to network with individuals at the state level in particular to, to get my students the resources that they needed in order to be successful to get my teachers the professional uh, learning opportunities that were instrumental in you know, bringing forth changes that we offered on a curriculum end. So uh, from a technology standpoint, uh, just making sure that the infrastructure was uh, up to date so that they could take advantage of the resources that were online and, and whatnot. So we always understand that no matter what the funding formula is uh, for creating uh, programs, within urban communities, suburban communities, rural communities, there's always gonna exist some level of inequity, but you have to be, as a, as a leader, just versatile enough to go out and get those resources so that your, your kids won't suffer, bottom line. So from my perspective, when I think about the work that we are doing in preparing leaders, right? Um, the work ahead of me, is how to figure out how to people how to get leaders to take up these issues around social justice and equity in real ways that is transformative of them right he's talking about school reform i'm talking about people reform how do you get people to decide just how much they're willing to move away from their wrong thinking about whoever they've otherized and marginalized in their minds, right? And I feel like I had to experience that for myself because dominant culture is pervasive in the public school system. So it took me figuring out that everything that told me I was good and smart and capable in public schools was not necessarily the stuff that mattered in an urban environment. And, but yet, I, I walk this tightrope of wanting to prepare kids for a world where they may have um, more opportunities for success, but not yet erode who they are and their erode the importance of their own culture, their own values, their own flavor. Right? It took me going into that environment to figure out that dynamic. Well, likewise, now my kids are the people who show up and want to be school teachers. They're the people who want to show up and be leaders. If we don't figure out how to build relationships with those students where they can talk about the areas that they just can't figure out on their own about how to promote social justice and equity in a flawed system. If I can't build relationships where they feel safe with me, in many cases, we're the first African-American encounter some of our students have had where they can actually build a relationship with someone and feel safe talking through the discomfort of not having an idea about how to use schools to promote social justice and equity. And I'm finally in a place where, um, I'm not gonna say my angry black woman isn't still alive and well, but she's not so angry that she can't reach across the aisle. She can't meet people where they are. She can't, develop relationships with people that will help them to dislodge their um, wrong thinking around what it means to live in a diverse world and see people as your, your co-parts. So that work for me, um, especially with 
balanced by a, a, a lot of Nate's experiential knowledge is now beginning to get really promising to me. So when you can, you know, teach uh, students in your EDL program how to go in and conduct equity audits within the classroom and how to look at systems like districts, school districts, and how to leverage resources and how to understand, you know, how to do audits within a, a broader context of just a classroom or a building. To me, that's a powerful tool that you're enabling those individuals with to go out and make sure that they're seeking equity in the, in the work that they do. So much of what we do in many of our classes, that's, that's the overarching theme, the recurrent theme in many of the EDL classes that I teach. You know, I want you to go in looking for opportunities to, to build in equity where we know that it's non-existent or there isn't enough of it, right? And once we get yeah. them to see the inequities, they can't unsee them. Right. They might right. not choose to do anything about them, but at least they can see them now. Yeah. That's key. That is key. You see, and I guess for me, just making the transition from that K through 12 mentality to more of a higher ed um, construct where you're teaching adults or teaching adult learners how to go in and interact and interface with uh, people who are in positions of power to get with you what you need from them. You know, uh, for me, that dynamic is always at play because students in these programs always want to know, you know, how do you go in and reculture a building? How do you reculture an entire school district? You know, what processes are, are available? Uh, uh, and there are systems out there that, and I mean, you're familiar with them, Tom. You're from MDE. There are a number of systems that are available to, to assist uh, leaders with that, but ultimately it's, it's going to have to be customized based on the resources at your disposal. So, Well, and I think, Nate, what you're saying is um, how do you, your students want to know how to reculture a, a building, but what Pam is also saying is how do we teach individuals to look at who they are as adult learners to yeah. maybe look at their own misconceptions, their own biases, their own prejudice, because they can't shift a system if they aren't able to shift their own, be authentic and shift who they are and really know who they are too. So it's, it's, it's a tall ask in higher ed to educate the adult and sometimes change the way they think so that they can go out and educate others. It's a, it's a, it's a tall job. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes you think it's kind of sad commentary that you know people that are going into education wouldn't already come with some essential skills on that end, right? As if you, you have to go out and try to convince people that they need to be uh, void of these implicit biases and whatnot. I mean, people, I've, I've, I'm a firm believer in right and wrong. I'm a firm believer that you know people are motivated in, in, intrinsically. They understand the implications of their actions. Uh, but I understand, you know, why we have to educate people who, you know, quite honestly, just need some deprogramming themselves. But it always amazes me the level of debunking that you have to do with. I'm not surprised, you know, and I'm not a firm believer in right and wrong. I don't think people see themselves as being wrong until they have an awakening around it. And I, I have to go back to my own epiphany around how I assess these little African learners who were in front of me having what I had been taught were school inappropriate behaviors, speaking in ways, behaving mm -hmm. in ways, carrying on in ways. I had to de-inferialize them in my mind and I'm black. So imagine what, that's a vulnerable thing to say out loud, but it's true. Yeah. And the, the educational system that rewarded me for all these things that my kids didn't come to school primed to know how to do. And so if I can figure out how to have that transformative journey, I can help and support other people in doing that because you know, the, the, the teaching ranks aren't gonna change anytime soon. If we're lucky, we will recruit this warrior tribe of diverse racially and ethnically and all kind of diversity teachers coming in. But in the here and now, 
we've got well-intentioned white people showing up to teach and lead in our definitely, schools. Definitely. And they're not signing up because they wanna go in and let their unconscious bias ruin the lives of little children, but it's happening. And therefore our job becomes, how do I love on you enough to get you to see that you need to have an awakening about how you're sustaining systems of oppression that need to be disrupted. And, and, and we have a lot of power that I didn't realize over them, not to, you know, you, you, it's not a forced transformation, but it is a nurtured transformation. And that's the work that I'm ready to figure out how to do. Yeah, I, I oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just, you know, what you're saying is really resonating with me. And, you know, part of my work is looking at the decolonization of the educational experience, right? We're all, the educational project in of itself is a colonizing thing. And it has standardized thinking and standardized what right is and standardized what wrong is. And you're, and I, and I see where both of you, um, and I'm going to use this term inappropriately, are right on this. And in, in, I agree with your thinking, I suppose, is the more appropriate way to say it in that, um, you know, I, on one hand, these folks are coming in and they, they don't know, or at least consciously don't care enough to know that they've been colonized and their framing is colonized, right? And then, and so there is some of that in play, that at play, but at the same time, going back to Nate's earlier point about school reform, even if we decolonize, they're still going into a colonized space. And if you don't reform the system to be a decolonized learning system, they're going to pick up their habits and tendencies of that colonized frame because it's easier to do that and it's easier to walk back into that space than it is to run against that frame by yourself. Unless, as you said, Pam, we are able to recruit a group of equity-oriented, diverse educators and leaders that will just overpower it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And, you know, I remain optimistic. I just think that you know, a lot of people that are going into the teaching profession see the shifts in, you know, demographics within this country and understand what that entails. If you look at the broader picture of things and what's happening on a national scale in terms of the politics of our country, you would think otherwise, right? But those people that are genuinely interested in teaching, whether that be in a rural, urban, suburban context, they know that these classrooms are becoming more culturally diverse and that they're going to have to have a different skill set in order to, to do a job and do it effectively. Uh, and that just, that doesn't mean just teaching to one homogeneous culture, you know, many subgroups are, are, are involved in this process now. And I think a lot of people are willing to take that task on in the interest of just learning, in the interest of teaching and learning, you know, so. No one of them. Well, I want to build on that optimism. I know we're coming close to our time with you because I know you are very busy, but if you could ask one more question. Um, as educational leaders, what are you hoping to see occur? What positive shift are you hoping to see occur in ed the education system in the next five years? And if that seems too soon, you can go out to 10, 15, but what are you hoping happens, this positive shift? You know, for me, we always talk about the value of collaboration uh, within communities that are different than our own. Um, and we talk about funding because it is essential to programmatic development within K through 12 schools, higher ed, what have you. Uh, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we'll figure out how to address these disparities. Uh, case in point, if we can spend over a, a half a billion dollars in Georgia on two Senate or a Senate runoff, right? We can certainly figure out a way to get some kids some money to build schools that have inf infrastructures that you know make them competitive with 21st century learning, right? I mean, think about that, it's staggering. Two seats, and again, I don't know what the total was. No, you know, it was probably over a half a billion, 
I'm, I'm thinking. Imagine what you could do with the funding in that state alone or neighboring states in terms of pre-K through 12 education. I mean, we're, we're so backwards when it comes to, you know, how we look at opportunities, right? And, and fundraising for that matter, okay? So I'm, I'm hoping that we could figure out some of the disparities that exist on that end and really get our kids and our students what they need so that, you know, these issues won't just be persistent and excuses for why, you know, we can't seem to get on track with educating our kids to the standards that we expect them to meet, right? So I, I needed a little time to collect my thoughts because honestly, in COVID-19 environment, I've just been in survival mode for a number of reasons, right? But what I hope is that something good will come out of COVID-19. I hope enough parents will have been driven to insanity, much like myself, being locked and, in with my kids. And me. And, and they me. will and they will say, we need to dignify the work that teachers do by insisting that more monies be paid for the profession of teaching. And then I believe Definitely. we would go back to a day where we would not be having to work so hard to recruit people into the field of education. Because truthfully, I'm not in education for the money. It never has been about money. And as, as one of my colleagues said, I also didn't sign up for a vow of poverty either, <laughs> but, but I'm not yes. in it for the money. I'm in it for the intrinsic gratification of the, of the seeds that I can sow that means something to me. I wanna feel like I'm making a difference. I wanna feel like my work means something. I, 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 I want to feel like I'm respected for, for being in a profession that transforms the world as we know it, right? And right now, teaching is not that anymore. People pity you when you tell them you're a teacher. My favorite teacher, when he found out I wanted to be a teacher, said, you're too smart to choose this. And, and, and what he was trying to say, that's not me saying I was smart, I'm above average at best. That's but true. what he was trying to say is, you could do so many other things. Do you know what a hard gig you're signing up for, for how you're com compensated and how you're respected? In his generation, however, coming from the rural South, being a teacher, you were a baller, a shot caller, you were a, a, a tribute to the race, you know? And so I would like to see that day when we almost look at our teachers like we do people who are signing up in the military because that's what it actually feels like now with everything that is that lands on the, on the doorsteps of schools. And so I believe when we give it that with or without all this money to miraculously build new buildings, which would also be great, we will begin to see uh, far-reaching changes in, 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 in the educational system that we have in the United States. In the world. Powerful stuff. Thank you. Thank, Thank you both you. so much. Will you come back and, and join us again? Yes, please. Anytime. This was I know administrators don't often go into the teacher's lounge. But. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. And Pamela, never minimize your intellect. You're one of the smartest people I know. Nate, you're pretty smart, too. I, I'm getting there, you know. We'll see. <laughs> the verdict is still out on that, you know. So, well, you picked me. You got to be smart. Exactly. That's why I said the verdict. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Next, next time, I want to ask about the origin story of the two of you because that's really piqued my curiosity when I you know. said you met at SVSU. Because I assumed you met at U of M since you both were went there. Well, I graduated from U of M in 1992. I'm. When did you graduate? 88. I was on a four year program. <laughs> so was she. So do the math. <laughs> Nate, Nate, you live with her when you well, get yeah, on this yeah. podcast. Yeah, have it any other way. <laughs> <laughs> this was amazing. We will have you back again if you're willing to come. It, we just, I know that our listeners, I enjoyed it and I learned so much every time both of you speak. Uh, so I know our listeners will, will learn a lot from you as well. It's, you know, it takes us a while to get warm up, warmed up, excuse me. Um, it took us a while, but um, I think that 
you know, we're in this for the long haul, at least at least I am, you know, and every opportunity I get in an EDL setting, uh, I just treat it as an opportunity to impart some knowledge of, you know, just something that our students are going to use to, to help them in the field, you know, in some capacity. So that's what it's all about, you know, it's inevitably it's, it's going to benefit our kids. So. Thank you for having us. My colleagues continue to be my favorite part of my job. So we appreciate the opportunity. All right. All right. Y'all take have, have a great afternoon. Take Thank care. You Thank you both so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. What a fantastic interview that was. I uh, feel very fortunate that we had the opportunity to sit down with both of them at the same time. Uh, right? I agree. I agree. They both are so such powerful presences in different ways and very rarely have I had an opportunity to sit with both of them at, together and hear them bounce off of each other and navigate and share their and disagree <laughs> yes that was amazing it was yeah. amazing um yeah but very respectfully too so um I learned yeah. a lot I did too I I think it was a really good discussion and one of the things that, you know, one of the takeaways for me on it was the, what they both showed, they didn't really, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but it was this element of vulnerability and being emotional and being authentic and being okay with that. And I think as leaders, as educators, the more that we show our authentic selves and the more that we show our vulnerability in both our learning and our growth um, the more I think we can really impact folks. And I think that that's what really stuck with me and drew me in and to them and their stories. So I thought that was really cool. I agree. I think they both have such different, um, I think kind of leadership styles, but the grounding piece that they both have in common is this idea that they're constantly growing and learning about themselves and are willing to talk about that process and model the process of questioning, looking for answers, mm -hmm. finding out who we are, or who they are, and then showing their students that that modeling is so key if we want to as educators, if we want to help future educators or current educators um, and leaders really make a change in the system mm -hmm. and, the, and in the world. Yeah, yeah, I really agree. Before we go, uh, I, I know we talked about doing a shout out uh, for shout outs today. Yes. Uh, and I, I have our person. So I would like uh, today to recognize um, interim dean and uh, Dr. Sapna Thwaite um, yes. to, as our shout out for shout outs. Now, for those of you who are listening from across the United States, because yep. uh, we know we have such a vast listenership. Uh, don't, please is, don't, don't minimize our leadership. There's international people listening to, please. It's across the world. Yeah, yeah, we, we have a, yeah, that's true. I'm, I apologize. Um, so uh, Sapna is the interim dean at the University of Michigan Flint. She started in this capacity in January. Um, and has been working tirelessly and, and, and talking about leadership as a human and leadership and authenticity um, and uh, leadership that cares, right? Like, I think these are all valuable traits and, and not only is she demonstrating them, um, she it really seems like she's someone that is trying to save is not the right word to put it, but like really do right by the people she works for. And, and she sees leadership as servant leadership, as Nate kind of talked about. And uh, I just wanted to uh, do a shout out to her for her stepping into a very difficult situation and, and really crushing it. I agree. She is leading with grace and authenticity. And I think that uh, we're lucky to have her and it's not an easy job. So thank you so much, um, Dean, Interim Dean Thwaite, for all that you're doing for our programs. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else to say today, Christine? No, I just was wondering if you want to apologize to the, the listeners for the fact that we waited. I mean, you, I'm going to just put the blame on you that we had such a lapse in between our episodes and maybe you should tell them that you won't let it happen again. 
Yeah, it, it, it is my fault that um, Christine was busy. And uh, no, I, I, we, will, we will work hard to make sure we can get some more <laughs> episodes in. Uh, we're planning to do a couple more interviews coming up soon with some exciting guests. Yes. We'll have some uh, students back on and some pro- from, from our programs. Um, and in the future, I'm hopeful that it's we a tease. will have it's a, it's tease. a tease. Uh, a relatively high-ranking administrator at the University of Michigan Flint will be joining us. So, uh, yeah, yes, fun times, exciting. fun times. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, we'll hope to see you around. Take care, everybody. Yes, thank you so much, and stay well and healthy, and take care. Bye.